Welcome to the Grace Life Church podcast. My name is Parker Smith, lead pastor of Grace Life Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. Our prayer is that the sermon you're about to hear will help you grow in your understanding of God's Word, point you to the person of Jesus Christ, and encourage you to live for the glory of God. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to the book of Titus, chapter 1. Uh, we're going to continue in our sermon series together through this book, and um, really continuing from where we left off last week in this two-part sermon series, unexpected, uh, but nonetheless a two-part sermon series entitled Sovereign Savior. And so this is part two, and so last week, I gave you the sermon summary on the front end. I'll do it again. It's the same one, but that God intends his sovereignty to be a source of great joy and comfort, especially in times of hardship. And if you recall, even last week, we mentioned several things from Titus 1 verses 1 through 4 that God chooses or that God ordains. It was an exposition of this text, and we it pushed us into some various conversations about the weighty doctrine of the doctrine of election. And I'm going to continue doing that even this morning, and I'll expound on four more truths that God in His providence chooses or ordains in this passage. But just by way of reminder, we said last week that God chose the Apostle Paul to be an apostle. We said, secondly, that God chooses His saints, namely that those are in Christ, are in Christ by sovereign election and the working of God. We said three, we said that God's election of His saints is unto truth and godliness. And that is, namely, that it's purposeful. God is desiring something in His election of His saints. Namely, that you grow in truth and in grace. And then fourthly, we said that God's election is unto hope of eternal life. That is, that we stand in confidence of God's working in His providence, even unto eternal hope in the triune God and life in Him. And the natural progression of these truths is moving us into the person of Titus and also the context of Crete and then into the local churches that are there. I, I said this statement last week and I'll say it again because it really it, it summarizes what part one and part two of this sermon series is trying to communicate is that the doctrine of election was a doctrine that Paul desired that Titus not to delay in knowing or to mature into. This wasn't something that he had to graduate to a certain level that he needed to understand, but rather a doctrine that he was to rest in even from the beginning of his pastoral ministry. And a pastor must be able to embrace a high view of the sovereignty of God if he is to survive in pastoral ministry. And likewise, you as God's people must embrace God's sovereign purposes if we are to survive in the chaos of this fallen world. And so I want us to push towards application this morning about all eight of these truths, and I'll pick up in truth number five. And again, I want you to see the textual outworkings first, and then I'll push us into practical outworkings of sovereignty. But if you would, stand with me as we read Titus 1, verses 1 through 4. 
The Apostle Paul says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, which which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. This is God's word. If you believe that, would you say amen? You may be seated. Again, continuing with textual outworkings, I want you to see, picking up from last week, I did the first four, and now number five. God has chosen his word, that is preaching, to be the primary means of his redemptive work. I get this in verses 2 and 3, but Paul says he's a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, that at the proper time manifested his word through preaching, which Paul says, I've been entrusted by the command of God. Paul is expanding and clarifying of this election and and is the question that could be asked is, how is it that the saints are to grow in the knowledge of truth? How is it that saints are to grow in godliness? How is it that they are come to know and to hope in eternal life? And Paul's answer to that is that these things have been manifested. These things have been, it means to be revealed. It has been revealed in a particular way. How has it been revealed? It's been revealed in the Word, Paul says. Well, how has it been revealed in the Word? That happens through preaching. It's through proclamation. That's why I said even last week that God's election does not absolve responsibility from anyone because God has not only prescribed the way in which we are saved, that is God's sovereign working in giving us faith in Jesus Christ, but he's also prescribed the means by which that faith comes. And that is through the grace upon hearing the word of God preached, upon hearing the gospel, and that sinners might respond. Paul alludes to this, or speaks very plainly to this, rather, in Romans 10, when he says, for who is everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then... Will they call on him that they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who is the believed of what he has heard from us? Verse 17, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God has chosen his word and his gospel to be the chief instrument in his redemptive plan of calling sinners to repentance. Paul speaks of this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He speaks of what Paul calls the foolishness of preaching. And he says that as the gospel is being preached, those who are perishing and they hear that gospel, they may be tempted and think within themselves, what a foolish message. What a foolish means to accomplish an end of salvation through preaching. I mean, how simple, how old-fashioned, how close-minded and silly. They are spiritually blind and they are perishing. And these people hear the gospel and they recoil. But Paul says for those who are being saved, 
This message is life. And it is the means of life that by God grants repentance and and reveals to them their need of repentance and need of faith in the gospel. And so Paul concludes in this way in 1 Corinthians 22 through 25. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Beloved, I would just submit to you this morning that not much has changed. That people would love to see a church, they would love to see a gospel people get sidetracked by worldly philosophies or endless debates or doing good deeds or political wisdom or practical wisdom or propping up seven ways to be a better steward and a better husband when the church is gathered. But church, know this, that the church of Jesus Christ has but one message that is paramount that must be preached. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is Christ crucified for the sin of the whole world. And that message, that hope, That gospel that is proclaimed, that is spoken, that is preached is the means by which the Spirit of God uses to draw men unto Himself. It is the foolishness of gospel preaching. Well, ah, people, people don't need that. They just need to be loved. Beloved, love is lacking if we don't tell them this truth. Well, people just need to be served. Beloved, They are not served well without hearing the gospel. Well, people just don't want to hear that anymore. Beloved, whether they want to hear it or not, this is the message they must hear that they may be saved. Well, that's just old-fashioned. Well, that's just out of date. Beloved, this is God's ordained means of how they will come to understand their need of Christ. And we must preach this gospel. If a church does all of these things and they fail in proclaiming Christ crucified, they have only affirmed the condemnation of those that they claim to love. Beloved, the gospel message is the message that must be spoken. It must be preached. It must be proclaimed. And don't hear me saying that we shouldn't love or go or give or, or, or serve others We certainly do that, but we also recognize that our mission is always incomplete until the gospel is preached because people need hope. They need to hear of their redemption, that they may respond in repentance and faith in Christ upon hearing the gospel. Point six in the continuation of this sermon series, God chose Titus to be the means of recovering biblical health in the churches of Crete. Get that from verse 4. Paul says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Titus was gifted. He was faithful. He was, as we said a few weeks ago, a true brother 
Paul not only recognizes Titus's ability and genuine conversion, but also recognizes God's providence and purposes in using him to address the unhealth within the churches of Crete. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says, this is why I left you in Crete that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The situation in Crete left quite a challenge for any pastor. There was doctrinal compromise, there was licentious living, there was moral collapse, and any pastor would have a great challenge in correcting the errors in this situation. And yet God is sovereign, and in his sovereignty appoints Titus with just the right skill set, just the right experience, just the right temperament, just the right skill, and just enough of a full reliance on the Holy Spirit to see the task of putting these churches on a path toward biblical health that would be accomplished through God's working through his servant, Titus. In other words, it was sovereignly decreed and ordained. It was a divine appointment that God had sovereignly placed Titus right where he wanted him. On a little island called Crete. Discipling and appointing pastors to shepherd the church. Beloved, our lives... And the situation in our lives, they're not accidents. That's not happenstance. This isn't the Apostle Paul looking through his bag of delegates thinking, well, what pupil can I send to the churches of Crete? No, I believe that the Lord has raised up Titus for such a task. And in time, and at the right time, God sovereignly positioned him to be sent by Paul to do this work. And Paul, don't miss this, Paul could say to both Titus and the churches of Crete, God has sovereignly and orchestrated this this to happen for your good and for his glory. Beloved, the same is true within your life. Those things that you think are accidents, those things that you think, well, this just must be a strange season that I'm in, those moments when you're tempted to see this, you're just on a path to the next thing or the next step, beloved, know that God has sovereignly positioned you and orchestrated you right where he wants you to be so that you might learn to live in his providence rather than run from it. Can you imagine if Paul would have said to Titus, Titus, while you're in Crete, Just do some good gospel work there, brother. The Apostle Paul is behind you. How futile, how meaningless would that have been? But he didn't say that, did he? He said, this is why I left you in Crete. There is work for you to do there, brother. There is work that the Lord intends to use you in. And that work was to lead and to shepherd and to pastor Titus didn't have to wonder, is this really where God wants me right now? In Crete? Titus didn't have to think for a moment, you know, things are pretty difficult right now. I wonder if the transport portal is open. 
I wonder if there's an opportunity elsewhere. No, Titus could stand in confidence, face an even difficulty and uncertainty, and say that God has me here for a purpose. And so even if it's hard, and even if it's difficult, Titus would say, I'm going to keep to the path. I'm going to diligently shepherd in confidence and trust in the Lord. And beloved, the same is true for you. That God has positioned you right where He wants you. Not for breakthrough, not for your best life now, but that God might receive glory from your life as you live for Him. That He may shape you in all the uncertainties and difficulties that you experience. That He might conform you to the image of His Son. That's true for you this morning. That's true for you even being surrounded in this church by these people that God has sovereignly brought about and He has surrounded you in this church with these people for a purpose. That He might use one another in the lives of one another. That He might receive honor and glory. And that's true for you and it's all the more true for the pastor. Paul says this is why. I left you in Crete. You could just as easily say, this is why I left you in Decatur, Alabama. This is why I left you at Grace Life Church. Beloved, God is purposeful in His positioning of us. So we don't have to live in fear, but rather we can live in faith and trust in the Lord. Seventhly, God has chosen and ordains proper leadership within the church. Looking at verses 4 and 5, and just as God has providentially would use Titus, God does the same in decreeing faithful pastors and shepherds for the flock. It was God's idea and God's design for His church that the local church be led by godly, called, qualified men. They are pastors. That was God's command and instruction by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy and in Titus. And consistently within the New Testament, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is led by pastors who function in plurality, that means more than one, in shepherding the church for the glory of God. Even in Titus 1.5, Paul or Titus was left in Crete that he may put what remained in the order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. That is, multiple pastors in multiple cities or churches throughout the various cities in Crete. And as you peer into the Scripture, just a little bit more, you see that it is godly called and qualified pastors are given or appointed in the church by the Lord. This is what Luke describes of the sovereignty working of the Lord and the Holy Spirit decreed pastors to the local church at Ephesus in Acts 20. When Paul warns them of false teachers that would come from within the flock, Luke records of Paul's words to pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That is, the Lord is at work in appointing those pastors to be shepherds of that flock. They are to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. Something special takes place when a li- in the life of a church and they set apart certain persons to labor in the gospel among them. That when a church 
recognizes the calling, the gifting, the qualifications of any man as a pastor, the church should come alongside him to affirm him in that work. And they should affirm him as a pastor, and they are recognizing him as someone appointed by the Lord to lead and to guide and to shepherd within the church. And those pastors that are over them in the Lord, they are to hold those pastors in high regard because of their labor among them. They are to pray and support those pastors because of the intense warfare and the burden that pastors carry. They look to their pastor's leadership in an honorable way, in reverence of Christ, because they recognize that he is one who must stand before the Lord and give an account for the love and the oversight that he has given to the flock. And within God's design, God has given pastors as the means of shepherd and guide to the local church. And the church is to look to pastors who are looking to the word in how the church ought to be led. And those pastors are to diligently seek to equip the saints for the work of ministry, Ephesians 4.12. And all of this brings about such unity in believing that God has given those pastors to the church as a means of oversight and service within the body, and to the degree that a church should be able to look at their pastors and say, I recognize those men, though they are far from perfect, and they'll never be, but they are godly men. And I believe that God has graciously and sovereignly appointed them and has called them to shepherd this church. They are here to pastor us and even to pastor me. And likewise, the unity and the love that takes place that a pastor or pastors can look among the flock for whom he is to give an account to the Lord for and say that these saints in Christ, these are God's elect that God has sovereignly appointed unto me that I might shepherd them faithfully to love them to care for them and to pray for them, to encourage them, to speak the truth and love to them, admonish them, correct them, teach them in accordance to the word of God. This is why even church membership matters, is that it signifies accountability to one another. That there ought to be agreement and love between the elect of God in the church and their pastors. And these pastors, who will soon be appointed in Crete, were to be the very ordained God, God-ordained means to bring leadership and order within the church. They are to stand as shepherds to guard the flock, to defend the flock, love the flock, and all is good and all is well, merry and bright. And then among the flock comes false teachers, comes wolves in sheep's clothing, Happened in Acts 20, happened in Titus, happened in 1 Timothy. And those wolves are seeking to cause harm within that body and seeking to harm the flock. And Lord, help that pastor who abandons the sheep and flees with his tail tucked between his legs. Instead, May he be instilled with a deep 
passion of the Lord and to know that God has called him to shepherd and called him to defend the sheep and he cannot hide and he must stand for the truth. And that plurality makes all the difference in that moment. That there are brothers locked arms to defend, to fight, to shepherd, to guard, to keep the gospel, and to love the sheep. This is God's design for his church. That shepherds would live, willingly lay down their life in shepherding the church. And these, it, this is the God-ordained means of leadership and structure within a church that God has graciously called and gives godly called qualified men to shepherd the church and following their great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd. Last point here, point number eight. God has chosen his election to be the means of grace and peace. I get that from verse four. To Titus, my True child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Grace is God's unmerited favor extended in the heart of his children. Peace is the calm and blessed assurance in every circumstance, knowing that we've been reconciled to God by faith in Christ. William Hendrickson said this, he says that grace is the fountain and peace is the stream from which it flows. And grace and peace, Paul says, has but one divine source in where they are from. It is from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. He is the sovereign Savior in a world that He rules. He is the sole sovereign. Whereas the Cretans would have looked to their governors or their emperors as their saviors in their society, and their society was marked by all types of dysfunction, all types of confusion, and absolute chaos. And such was even beginning to affect the churches there in Crete. And Paul emphatically states, Beloved, the church has a sovereign. The church has a savior. He commanded me to preach the gospel, verse 3, and he is the one that gives grace and peace in the lives of his people. And this is the way in which the grace of God and the peace of God comes to the people of God by resting in the sovereignty of God. And that's why I preached the sermon the way that I did, that the grace and peace that comes from resting in the sovereign rule and reign of Jesus Christ that he sovereignly chose Paul, that he sovereignly chooses his saints unto salvation, that he sovereignly chose them unto growth and godliness of eternal life, that he sovereignly chose Titus, that he sovereignly prescribed pastors to shepherd the church. Titus is about to engage in some incredibly difficult spiritual warfare. His task was not easy. If he's anything human he'll be tempted to likely quit. He'll be tempted to succumb by being entirely overwhelmed by the weight of his task. He would no doubt be isolated. He would no doubt be unsure about who to trust. He would be beaten down. He would be misunderstood. He would, betrayed, he would be betrayed by people he thought he could trust. Wave after wave after wave of ministry high and ministry low. He would carry the burden of pastoring day by day by day, knowing that one day he will stand before the Lord and give an account for how he is shepherded. 
He'd be tempted to look at the churches of Crete and, and say, it's not working. Nothing's happening. Nothing's changing. We're not making much progress in living distinct lives among the Cretans. I mean, where in the world am I going to find qualified pastors here? And in the context of that chaos, Paul says, Titus, don't miss my first point for you. You got to know. You got to know one thing as you're headed into this. And it's been pulled out by eight different points in the last two weeks. You need to know one thing, Titus, when you walk into uncertainty of this kind, when you walk into hardship of this kind, when you walk in uphill battle of this kind, you need to know, Titus, pastoral lesson number one, God is sovereign. And you rest in Him. And Titus, you've got to learn to lay your head on something. As you battle, as you weigh, as you war... You need to know the pillow of God's sovereignty at the end of the day. To rest in this truth. Or, you can do like so many others do. You can fight it. Beloved, it's a long, hard battle if you do so. And it's a weight that you'll buckle under. In a world that seems so out of control, in a task that seems far too much, God extends to Titus grace and peace. Beloved, the same is true for us as well. That God extends to us in the midst of chaos, in the midst of uncertainty, God extends to us the reminder of His sovereignty that we might learn to rest in Him. So we go to practical outworkings then of His sovereignty. There may be a temptation to consider a doctrine like this. It's high, it's lofty, it's incomprehensible for our minds. And see it as distant or abstract or that's just something that theologians need to think about. That's something pastors need to think about. That's something scholars need to wrestle with. And I would just submit to you that nothing could be further from the truth. I know of no solid foundation than this. Than the absolute sovereignty of God. And so I want to give to you very quickly some practical outworkings of sovereignty. Very, as fast as I can. I don't want to tell you how many I have because you'll get a little nervous. But I promise we're almost done. Okay? First, grace and peace. Verse 4, in the same way that Paul infers that grace and peace comes to Titus, the same is true in your life in resting in sovereignty and providence of God, that this is the peace that Paul speaks of in Philippians 4 that surpasses all understanding. To know that nothing in this world is beyond the providence and sovereignty of God. Moreover, you begin to recognize that even your salvation is unto Christ and it's from Him. It's all truly of His grace. It wasn't a work that you performed. It wasn't of any merit or your standing or any credit to your account that God saved you. It was instead an abundance of grace and mercy from the Lord. He sovereignly chose you. He loved you. He pursued you. He saved you. 
And I would say that a church that comes to understand this great doctrine and rest in this doctrine, they too experience such peace, such grace within their fellowship. They recognize that they are all equally undeserving of the, of the grace that they have received. And they have been freely given grace by Jesus Christ in whom they delight in. Secondly, assurance and trust. Because election is anchored in the character of God, we have then great confidence and assurance. Because salvation is first a work of God, we don't have to rely on our own abilities or our own confidence. If salvation were a work that you performed, we should be greatly concerned that it could be lost, that our hope could be abandoned. But when we understand that God is sovereign in salvation, and He's sovereign over salvation, we have great confidence and assurance that He is the one who saves. This then pushes us deeper into faith, believing that God is who He says He is. I've told you before, some of you even know this more personally, that, that for years... I would wake up in a panic in the middle of the night in cold sweats, entirely overwhelmed at the thought of death, at the thought of eternity. It haunted me like a plague. And the gentle, calm assurance came when I learned to rest and delight in this truth. That God is sovereign. He is in control. He can be trusted. And I allowed the words of John 14, 1-7 to just wash over my mind, to calm my heart, and to assure me of my faith in Christ. And for those in Christ, God's love for you is not like the decision of the flower. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. If you think that way, I would encourage you to all the more to anchor your heart and anchor your mind in this truth of God's sovereignty and work of salvation, that it is the only source of assurance and hope that you can have. Thirdly, rest in comfort. That there is great freedom from striving when we come to rest in the providence of God. When we are able to rightly balance, diligence, and faith. We, we've been given responsibilities, God and His sovereignty, but we are not ultimate in governing our own faith. We instead are invited to rest in the Lord's sovereignty who rules over all things, and to truly rest in this reality. There's nothing more freeing. There's nothing more to delight in that I don't have to be in control, that I don't have to be in charge, that I can truly trust in the Lord. I can rest in His goodness and find my ultimate joy in Him. And when difficulty comes, to know that God is still in control. When trouble comes, to rest in God's sovereign hand, that this is the cure for worry and trouble in the human heart. Beloved, we only need plumb deeper into this truth. Fourthly, Practical outworking, it brings about humility and dependence. Verses 2 and 3. There's not another doctrine that is more humbling than the doctrine of election. To know and recognize that everything that we have is a gift from Him, and to know that salvation is the gift of God, there's nothing more humbling than that. The thought of being 
foreknown and predestined, chosen, loved in Christ before the foundation of the world, it removes every ounce of human pride in the human heart. And in great desperation, it clings solely unto Christ. And the only thing I can say is what often prevents people from delighting in the sovereignty of God is their own pride. They want to be in control. They want to be in charge. They want to govern the Almighty. But beloved, God can be trusted. You can rest in Him. You can really rest in Him. There's really no one better to rest and depend upon. For who else would you desire to be sovereign in salvation? Who else could be trusted with such a great weight and such a great task? Then it's secure in the hands of its rightful king. And allow it to stay there. And allow it to be a cause of great rejoicing in in you to know that God is in control and that He's sovereign in all things. And then lastly, points us to eternal hope and evangelistic zeal. The Apostle Paul makes it crystal clear that the hope of eternal life is dependent upon the sovereignty of God. That the promise of eternal life has been given to those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And it's for this reason that we can be most assured, Paul says, of the hope that we have in God. And there are many that would look at this doctrine of election and they would say wrongly that it leads to fatalism. Which is why I addressed that briefly even last week. It doesn't lead to fatalism. It's fact, it's clearly the opposite. It leads to hope. The only way that it leads to fatalism is for those that desire to be God. And that's why I reminded all of us that no one knows who the elect are. Only God knows. And how God governs, how God is sovereign over all things, how His counsel stands from beginning to end without removing any human responsibility or agency, it is certainly a divine mystery. And one that our finite minds simply cannot understand or contain. But that should not cause us to dismiss or to doubt these glorious truths that we see in this text. It should cause us to stand in more of all of them and more in all of the Lord, of who He is. And that's why we read Romans 11 for our call to worship. These thought to send our hearts soaring in worship. This is the sovereign God that we serve. This is the sovereign God who saved us. And I don't understand and I don't fully get it because you are God. I am not, but I trust what you say in your word and I'm not going to fight against you. I'm going to rest in what you say. These mysteries become strikingly clear when we peer into Calvary in which sinful, carnal men of their own doing and their own volition sought to put Christ to death. No one twisted their arms. No one coerced the crowd to say, free Barabbas and crucify the Messiah. 
There was no cosmic mind games when Pilate asked the crowd, then what should we do with Jesus? And they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. They acted willfully. They acted freely. And they acted sinfully. In their own doing. But also, they acted in accordance with God's working and God's plan. And I highlight that because that same mystery is at work even today. People live, people die. They make choices, they make decisions, their hearts are hardened, they reject Christ as the Messiah, and they're condemned. And in great mystery, (laughs) and in such utter amazing grace, the Lord sovereignly moves in the sinful, calloused hearts of His people that deserve to perish like the rest of the world. And by grace, and only by grace, they're quickened. They're brought to life by the Spirit of God, causing them to repent and believe the gospel. That the sovereign working of God unto salvation, and what I've argued is for the last two weeks, that that is no accident when that happens. But was the sovereign plan of God before the foundation of the world. Eternity hangs in the balance. People's eternal state rests right here. Some of them you know. Some of them you love. They're not saved. They're they're friends. They're family. They, They live all around you and they're rejecting the gospel and they're perishing because of this. And you may wish, as I have, and I certainly have friends and family that aren't saved, and I've been in this struggle that I would do anything that they might be saved. And the Apostle Paul wished the same, even of Israel. He said, I wish that I could be accursed and cut off for their sake, that they may come to know Christ, that His passion, that He longed to see His kinsmen believe the gospel. But their salvation isn't up to you. And it isn't up to me. But it is in the hands of sovereign God. And when we recognize that, it does two things for us. And I close in this. First, it causes us to desperately appeal to God to save them. That we cry out to God on their behalf. That they might be saved to say, God, would you do what only you could do? What I wish that I could do. What I wish that they could do. But they are blind and they are in unbelief. And they are darkened in their sinfulness. And they are without hope. But God, you can save them. I'm asking that you who are mighty to save, that you would save them by your power. And it would cause you to fall headlong and to extend such reliance and dependency on the Lord to say, God, would you please grant them faith unto salvation? Would you work in their heart by your grace and grant them faith to believe the gospel? And the second thing it does is it causes us to be diligent 
in evangelizing and sharing the gospel. That God has ordained preaching to be the means of his gospel work in the world. That faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so we go and we do what God has commissioned us. We preach the gospel. We preach Christ crucified. And we extend the gracious appeal to sinners to come and to repent and to believe the gospel. And we trust that God is at work sovereignly saving and sovereignly redeeming his people. Because he is the sovereign savior. And Paul knew this firsthand. He knew the trouble and hardship of pastoral ministry. He knew the hardship of life and of gospel work. And he imparts these great truths of God's sovereignty to Titus while it's in Crete. In Acts chapter 18, we find the Apostle Paul has just endured some incredibly difficult hardships. He had just left Thessalonica and Berea. And he's encountered a great deal of hostility from the people there. Angry mobs were seeking to attack him and do him harm. And he then found himself in Athens in which his ministry would be reviled there too. It had been no doubt a very long and strenuous season of ministry for the Apostle Paul. And the Lord comes to the Apostle Paul and gives him a vision to go to a a different city, the city of Corinth. And I'm sure in his flesh, Paul, as he was getting settled in, was thinking, well, I'm sure it's about time for everything to turn south again. I mean, I don't know when or I don't know how, but the angry mob's going to come from somewhere and they're going to come and they're going to assault me like they did in the past. I wonder when Silas and Timothy are going to have to come up with another plan of escape for me here. And the word of the Lord comes to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 11. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to do you harm, because I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Beloved, God intends his sovereignty to be a source of great joy and comfort, even in times of hardship. Paul lived this. Paul preached this. And preaching the gospel and trusting the work of the word and trusting the sovereignty of God, and Paul now invites Timothy to do the same. To trust to be still and to rest in the hands of a sovereign Savior. And that's the same invitation that we have today as well. To rest in that truth. To lean all the way back into the sovereignty of God. To know that you were loved, you were chosen, and in the providence of God, All things come under His rule and His reign. And you don't have to fight that. You can truly rest and delight in it. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. 
If you would like more information or have questions about Grace Life Church, please email us at gracelifedecatur at gmail.com or find us on Facebook by searching Grace Life Church Decatur. And if you live in the Decatur area, we would love for you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until next time on the Grace Life Church Podcast.